uh, if you are connected to Will's email, he sent out uh, those uh, resources electronically. And uh, there was a, um, a sermon, actually, that he sent out a link to a sermon. That was uh, an overview of the Old Testament, which was really, uh, he did in about an hour what I'm taking seven, eight hours to do. So he did a better job. <laughs> he did a great job. Um, you'll really appreciate that. I thought that was so helpful. Um, but tonight we're continuing. I know it's taking a long time. Uh, we're continuing to work our way to the Old Testament. I promise we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book by book uh, sometime soon, but I'm trying to get us ready. I guess it feels to me a little bit like if you're going to do a big project, I know uh, that some people just like when they're going to do a big project, they like to jump in and start working. Uh, one time we visited a township in uh, South Africa and then we were, they wanted us to help them build a church and everybody just started going. They all had a pieces of tin that they were putting up and somehow they knew what they were doing, but I had no idea what I was doing. And other people, uh, when they're going to do a, a project, they plan, they prepare so that when they start going, they know what they're doing. We had Germans come visit us in South Africa as well on a missions trip, and their style is the exact opposite. I mean, if they have a week project, they'll take four days to plan it, and then the last day to uh, to do it, and they do it well. It goes more easily as a result of all that planning. And so as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more like that, actually. I used to just jump in. You know, we're Americans. We don't plan. We just do. But now I see the benefits of knowing what you're doing first. And so we're trying to figure out what we're doing when we read uh, the Old Testament recently by thinking about the story that the Old Testament tells. And so I'm trying to give you a preview of the overall story, partly because it's really difficult to understand the specific things going on in each book if you don't understand the bigger picture first. So if I had a, um, a board up here and I drew a black circle on the board and I asked you, what, what is it that you uh, might, might say it's a circle. You might try to come up with, you know, if it was a philosophy class, you might try to come up with some philosophical answer or something. You could talk all day long about what it is. But then if I start drawing some other circles, you're going to be like, Oh, that's actually the ear of Mickey mouse. It becomes clear. Once you see the bigger picture, the bigger picture helps you understand the individual parts. And so if you look at one part without seeing the connection to the bigger picture, you could look at that circle all day long and you're probably uh, not going to, not going to get it. And so I know it's taken a while, but I, I think this is going to help you understand the Bible better and also life actually, <laughs> because uh, this is not just a story that we're talking about. It's actually our worldview. And I think um, most of us probably are familiar with the concept of of worldview. Um, but imagine if um, you were, uh, the only game that you knew how to play was soccer. In fact, imagine if the only game you knew in the whole world was soccer. So you didn't even have the concept of any other kind of game besides soccer. And you go to a new place and they're playing a game with a ball and you don't even ask because you think there's only one game in the world and you go out there and you think you're playing soccer when you're really actually playing basketball. That's going to be a problem. Even if you are really good at soccer, it doesn't matter how good you are at soccer. If you're playing basketball, it's not going to work. And life is a little like that. We don't just do things. We grow up being discipled in a certain way of looking at the world. Uh, people are constantly telling us this is what life is about. This is what's important. This is what people's problems are. You actually can't even really um, turn on the television without being taught that. You can't, you can't go anywhere without being taught that, even like McDonald's. And those ideas get in us at a deep level and they shape what we do, what we don't do. If you think of life like a game, we think there are certain rules and there are certain objectives and a certain way of measuring how you're doing. There are wins and losses, but what if the game that you think you're playing is not the actual game that's being played? What if you think you're playing soccer when the game is actually basketball? And so 
if you're if you don't know the game you're playing, it doesn't really matter how good you are at it. Uh, and the same is true with life. It it doesn't really matter how good you are at doing certain things if you don't know how the world works. And that's part of why we're looking uh, so deeply at the story that we find in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is not, it can be a little frustrating if you think the Old Testament is only practical in that it has to tell you what to do tomorrow. And so the reality is the Old Testament's not always telling you exactly what to do tomorrow. There are times it does that, but a lot of times what the Old Testament is doing is more big picture. It's it's helping you have the right values. It's helping you see reality from God's perspective. And uh, that is important because we're constantly being taught a different view of reality. And so it's almost like in life, it feels a little bit like you're living in an, an insane asylum your whole life. And you thought things were one way. And suddenly, somehow you realize, uh, no, something completely different is going on. And yet you're still living there, right? And uh, you're still tempted to think the way that you used to. And so you need to go back and almost be trained to think about life in the right way and reminded of this is reality. This is what is actually real. This is what's actually going on. And that is actually practical. It, it, it Like knowing your name is practical or knowing why you exist is practical. It's fundamentally practical. As someone has said, following the Bible is not about reforming our behaviors by strict rule keeping. Rather, it's an invitation to our imagination, offering to us whole new ways of seeing and being in the world in the ways that God describes it. God does not simply liberate us in Christ by giving us more and different laws, but by enabling us to look at literally everything from a different perspective with a new reference point for reality. And so, of course, God does give us laws and things like that, but he's doing more than just giving us laws. And those laws really only make sense in light of the bigger picture. And so, really, what's happening as we study the Bible is that it's offering us a whole new way of looking at the world. And it is inviting us to participate in that big epic story that uh, God is telling from from cover to cover. And so, and this is really, I mean, a big part of even how uh, sanctification happens, actually. <laughs> what happens when you're saved is like you grow up and you're told this is like, it's like you're, imagine you're in a play and your whole life you're being told this is your script. This is the script. This is what the play is about. This is, these are your lines. This is, this is how the play is supposed to go. But when you become a Christian, it's like you put down that script and you're giving a whole new script of how life is, your part in the play, what actually is happening. And now you have to learn how to live your life according to that script. And that's kind of sanctification as you keep going back to, oh, this is reality. What does it look like for me to think? And what does it feel? What should I feel like in light of this reality? And so we're walking our way slowly through uh, the story section by section to help us understand the Old Testament and to help us understand ourselves and our world. And you remember, first we said, uh, there's the beginning, Genesis chapters one and two, and I don't want to go over all this again, but these are literally two of the most important chapters in the Bible. There's a reason they're first, Genesis one and two, in terms of the story even of the Old Testament. What's funny though, is we're so used to uh, the Bible beginning this way that we don't always appreciate it didn't have to. The Bible didn't have to begin with Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, uh, you might just expect it to begin with Exodus, the book of Exodus. Why? Because you think about uh, Moses. When, Moses is the author of Genesis. When did Moses write Genesis 1 and 2? So this is kind of a funny trick question. I told my kids the other day, this is a trick question. Um, and so that ruined it, but I'll tell you the same thing. This is a trick question. Which came first, creation or covenant? The covenant at Mount Sinai. Well, it's kind of a trick question because we all know, obviously, creation happened in time before Mount Sinai. But actually, in terms of the writing of the Bible, Mount Sinai and Moses being uh, 
and the people of Israel being rescued from Egypt happened before God revealed all this stuff about creation to Moses. It was probably, uh, Moses didn't write, uh, Moses didn't write Genesis 1 and 2 when he was a child, and it probably wasn't, he didn't write it while he was a shepherd in Midian. Most likely he wrote these chapters after God delivered Israel from Egypt, after God met with them at Mount Sinai, probably even after God revealed about the tabernacle, uh, sometime in the wilderness wandering. And so why is it significant that Moses starts there when he writes the story of, of Israel? Well, first of all, I mean, it reminds us the story of Israel doesn't begin with Israel. Second of all, he's flipping upside down the way the Israelites thought about God. And then third of all, the Bible begins, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the land. Or the heavens and the earth, it's the same, same word. And so what's happening with Israel is God's making a covenant with Israel. And covenants in those days had witnesses. So we'll talk about this more when we get to uh, Deuteronomy and when we uh, work our way through Exodus. But Moses is actually using, uh, God is actually using, he's entering into a particular kind of relationship with Israel using a um a form uh, like a a political kind of treaty that was common in those days. So it's actually part of what helps us date, prove the date of when Exodus was written because there's an era when certain kinds of covenants were made between nations and they had a very particular form to how they did those covenants. And the covenant that we read God making with Israel follows that form. And uh, one of the things those covenants had, this is a long story, that, but one of the things those covenants had was they had witnesses. And of course, everybody was a polytheist in those days besides Israel. And so when they made a covenant between kings, it was always actually a covenant really between kings. It was never between a king and a nation. So that's another part of what's shocking about what God does. But it's a covenant between kings, a stronger king and a lesser king. And they would call witnesses and the witnesses would be the gods. So they would, they'd call the biggest thing to witness to the covenant. And of course, God is the only God. So he's not, he can't call other gods to be his witness to this covenant. But what does he call to be his witness instead? In the Bible, he's constantly calling the heavens and the earth. <laughs> it's almost like he creates heaven and earth to be a witness of what he's doing for his people. And there's a lot more in terms of the impact the way this story begins makes on the way we read it. But the point is, the doctrine of creation isn't something extra. It's fundamental for understanding the story and for understanding our life. So maybe you tell me, what are, real quickly, what are some of the ways Genesis 1 and 2 are so important for understanding not just Israel, but for us understanding even how this world works? What would be some of the the ways Genesis 1 and 2 impacts our worldview. They don't have to be super profound. Okay, so that's a big one. We're not God. I, I think if a lot of people could figure that out, their whole world would view would change. Um, <laughs> there is a God. He is not you. Uh, there's only one God. There are things that are not God. The things that are not God are brought into existence by God and are dependent on God. What else? God did not need to create the world. The, that's actually really very different. So in, again, in um, Moses's day, you know why the gods created the world according to every other story? I'll talk about this in a minute, but there's every other story was the God. There were all these gods and they had, um, so they basically mirrored, people basically mirrored, the king basically mirrored religion off of the way he wanted the world to work. <laughs> so religion actually in the world around Moses was really a, a good tool for powerful people to use to keep uh, less powerful people doing what they wanted. So the story basically was that there were these 
powerful gods who had uh, less powerful gods who did all their work. And one day, those less powerful gods, this is one of the stories, there were many stories, but uh, Mesopotamia, this is the story of Mesopotamia. They had the lesser gods were like, we are tired of doing all this work. We've been doing all this work for you guys for a long time. So they basically went on strike. And the powerful gods got upset and they're like, well, we want you to do this work. And they're like, no, we don't want to do this work. And so finally they came to an agreement and they're like, let's make man to do this work for us. And so the story in the world around Israel was basically that God, the gods needed man. They created man because they didn't want to do, there's a lot of things they didn't want to do anymore. And so the biblical story is very, very different. God doesn't, he has no needs. What can we bring to him? That changes everything actually about our religion. Uh, what else does the, how else does creation impact our worldview? Right, we're going to see that. It actually, in the, the biblical story, makes us glorious. Man, instead of making us just slaves, God makes us a kind of kings. And actually, in the ancient world, so they did have, there were people that were considered to be made in the image of God in the stories around Israel. But you know who it always was? It was always the king. So the common person was never considered to be made in the image of God or to be a son of God. Pharaoh would have called himself a son of God. But the biblical story is very different because it's just man, Adam, actually male and female are created in the image of God. God, uh, the world belongs to God. God's the sovereign king over the world. God originally created the world good. God created the world for a purpose. God designed man for a specific purpose. God's intention was blessing. God's intention was blessing. And this, these are all kinds of things we take for granted, but it's very different than the way every other story really goes. And in Genesis chapter one and two, we find God creating a good world for man to enjoy as a kind of king or at least representative of the king. And so if you want to understand how the world's supposed to work, imagine a place where God and people dwell together, where everything's perfect, where man is representing God and enjoying the presence of God. That is God's design for the world. God created man to have a relationship with him, their main job was to rule over the world and to represent God and bring it into submission and make the whole world like the Garden of Eden, really, and fill the earth with God's glory. And yet man failed at the beginning, and so he's kicked out of the perfect place. And by the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, he's on the outside, and the world's become wild and dangerous because of man's sin, and it's impossible for man to get back into where everything's perfect. Which, of course, is the second part of the story. Again, we're going to get to the tonight's, but... This is also fundamental. We call that the fall, the second part. We could call it the falls, we said last week, because from Genesis 4 to 11, everything falls apart. Man just gets worse and worse. Eve has two sons. That looks good, but the one son kills the other. He establishes a city named after his son, and so man starts creating culture, but it's for himself, not God. He's establishing his own kingdom, and by the end of chapter 4, you have this man named Lamech, who's the exact opposite of everything God designed man to be. So what is Lamech? Do you remember at the end of Genesis 4? He's a bigamist. So he's rejecting God's plan for marriage. He's a murderer. So he takes justice into his own hands. And he acts like he's uh, in the place of God. God says, I'll protect Cain. And Lamech says, Lamech's going to protect Lamech. If God is going to avenge Cain seven times, I'll do it for myself 70 times. Uh, and, and yet, of course, in the middle of all this, there's this remnant of people calling on God. And so there's hope. But Satan is attacking the remnant relentlessly until Genesis 6. It's only Noah and his family left. The world's absolutely terrible. So God judges the world and starts over. And yet it doesn't get better because it's only a little while after that, the whole world joins together again in rebellion against God. And so a lot of falls, which has a lot of implications for the rest of the story as well. Um, because Adam is actually sort of an illustration of how uh, sin works. Um, if you think about uh, Adam, his failure, it's really the same as Israel's failure and our failure. And it has implications for the way we look at the world as well. What, what are some of the implications, the doctrine of uh, the way the second chapter of the story, the fall, what are some of the implications that has for the way we look at the world? Yes, that's a pretty big uh, a shocker. Um, 
very hard for us to believe. Um, first of all, it, it, that there is a problem, you know, uh, things are not the way they're supposed to be. So that's very different. Um, unbelievers kind of who, who deny um, God and creation, it's hard for them really to complain about anything without using a Christian worldview. So they kind of have to borrow from us to be able to complain because like, you know, when one tiger kills another tiger, what's the tiger going to say? He's just like, that's the way it is, right? Um, and so unless there's a way things are supposed to be, you can't really say there's a problem. And the way that you define a problem obviously has implications for where you look for a solution. So if the problem is a fit primary physical, you do one thing. If the problem is ignorance, you do another thing. If the problem is sin, that has implications for the solution. And of course, all these falls prove that man's not able to fix the problem. He's not able to get back into the presence of God and he doesn't really want to. I once heard someone describe the story of the Bible as, I, I like this, as a story about an unstoppable force meaning an immovable object. And the unstoppable force is God's intention to bless. And the immovable object is man's stubborn refusal to submit to God. And so that's kind of the story that we're reading here. God has this intention to glorify himself by showing his love and blessing. And man is committed to, to not submitting to God. So we've got the creation, then we got the fall. We've got this great design for the world, this massive problem. How's it going to be solved? Last week, we said you could summarize this, the Old Testament's answer to that with the word promise. And this is the unifying theme for the rest of the Old Testament. What's the Old Testament? It's promises made. And so what are we looking for when we read the Old Testament? We're looking for the promise. What does this teach about how God saves? And so the Old Testament is all about God revealing his promise plan for solving the problems man sin created and for getting us back into the place he originally created, you might say, but better. How do we get back in the garden? But, uh, but actually better. And last week we looked at a couple illustrations in Genesis of that promise. You remember Genesis 3.15, God promises a seed who's going to defeat the serpent. Genesis 9, 26 and 27, God's going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Genesis 12.3, God's going to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And then Genesis 49, 10, there's going to be a king who comes from the line of Judah. And so it's like we have all these pieces to the puzzle, basically. We're getting up. We're trying to gather together these puzzle pieces to, to figure out how is God going to rescue the world? But we don't have everything yet, obviously. It's a lot of pages in the Old Testament. And so there are these parts that are fuzzy coming out of Genesis. But one of the things that's clear is that whatever God's going to do, he's going to do through this nation, Israel. They have some big part in this. And this is the fourth chapter in the Old Testament story, you could say. Creation, fall, promise, Israel. So you have the world in Genesis 1 to 11, all these problems, and then this nation in Genesis 12 and the rest of the Old Testament. God raises up a nation to save the world, to deal with the crisis that man's sin has created. And so we talked about Genesis 12 as an answer to the curse. And we saw God's unstoppable intention to bless. And he comes to Abraham and he's like, there are problems with the seed. So I'm going to make it possible for you to bear fruit and multiply. There's enmity between the woman's seed and the followers of Satan. So I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. There's problems in man's relationship with me. So I'm going to pour out blessing on you instead of curse. And I'm going to be with you. And I know that man's sin has impacted the entire world, not just you. So I'm going to make your descendants into a nation and I'm going to give them land and I'm going to use your seed to eventually bless the whole world. Listen to this verse. This is the end of Genesis 12, uh, 3. He says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's like the one of the key verses. That's like almost the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Uh, for God so loved the world, he chose Abraham. And there's, and this is how God is accomplishing, is going to accomplish this great salvation. But there's a little bit of, a little bit of ambiguity there in terms of how this is going to happen. He says, in you, all the families of, of the world are going to be blessed. But obviously, Abraham's not around anymore. So how's this going to happen? 
Is it going to be, does he mean it's going to be in this, this nation, this nation that comes from Abraham, or is it going to be from an individual from the nation? And we don't actually totally know at this point. We just know somehow the blessing is going to come from the descendants of Abraham. And we know that we better keep our eye on Abraham's descendants and specifically the ones that come from Isaac, because God's got a, he goes to great work to say, it's, it's not anybody but Isaac, it's Isaac and his descendants. And then Jacob is next, who at the end of Genesis is actually bringing blessing to the world. If you remember, Joseph saves the world during a time of famine. And then Jacob comes into Egypt. And one of the just most awesome scenes at the end of Genesis, this old man, Jacob, blesses the world emperor, you know, Pharaoh, which is, it's always the greater that blesses the lesser. And so Jacob comes in and blesses the Pharaoh, which is shocking. But that's just a, a preview. There's still a lot missing in that Abraham's descendants are not a nation. They're just a family. They're living in Egypt. By the time we open up Exodus, they've actually been living in Egypt for how long? Like 400 years. So we talk about the 400 silent years at the end of the Old Testament, between the end of the Old Testament and the New. But these are like the four, these are like 400 silent years, actually. And we don't really know much about what's happening from Joseph to, to Moses. And so we're wondering, um, what is going on? Like, what is God going to do with these people? And the answer is Exodus. In Exodus, God glorifies himself by rescuing this group of people and making them into a nation. And as he does, as he makes them into a nation, he answers a lot of questions about how he's going to make the world right, actually. And uh, we're going to get into this more when we get into Exodus. So we're going to talk about Exodus in here. And then one day we're going to talk about Exodus in church. We might take a little break from Luke and do the first half of, of Exodus and then come back to Luke. But We'll see if I can get away with that, but we're, 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 um, I'm already working on Exodus. I'm so excited. It's amazing. But what is God doing? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a question that we're often asking. And that's certainly a question that you would be asking as you begin the book of Exodus, because Satan, um, is attacking the remnant, the seed of God. And using Israel actually to build, uh, Pharaoh's kingdom. So Pharaoh, kind of funny, ironic, but his, uh, his sort of mascot or his insignia was a serpent. And, um, Pharaoh was using God's seed to build his, his, uh, cities. And actually, most likely the cities that they were, it's, it's, it's possible. It's likely the cities that he was having them build actually were these like storehouses for um the his his that his worship would continue after he died because these pharaohs obviously wanted to be worshiped after they died and so they would build these little cities and store all kinds of things there for sacrifices and anyway he's using the israel the israelites somehow um and we're wondering at the beginning of exodus has god forgotten his plan but no, he's allowing this to happen. He hasn't forgotten his plan. He's using this situation to glorify himself by providing a solution to man's most basic problem. So at the beginning of Exodus, one problem of the fall is that there's this growing ignorance of God. And around the world, people are actually worshiping demons by now instead of God. And even Israel doesn't really know God. We're seeing Genesis uh, 2 they cry out, and we always put in the next word. We're like, they cry out to Yahweh. But if you look at the text, it doesn't say they cry out to Yahweh. It just says they cry out because they don't really even really know God very well. And we can see that in the story itself. And that's the biggest problem there can be. And so God uses Satan's attacks and man's evil to enable him to rescue Israel in such a way that demonstrates he's the only God in the world. As he overcomes all this evil and he judges his enemies and he shows mercy, mercy to these sinful people, the Israelites, ultimately to get his people back to where he originally designed for us to be. I think, you know, that you've heard the thing, um, the statement, a theod theodicy, which is like you're trying to explain the problem of evil. And um, it is, uh, you know, we have to work at that. But I think 
the beginning of the book of Exodus is, uh, is like a story that is God's explanation to the problem of evil. He's using evil to glorify himself by saving people through uh, judgment. But he uh, is not just saving Israel from Egypt. He is saving Israel to himself. Uh, he, he, we usually, if you read Exodus, you think of Exodus kind of the beginning part as the exciting part. And then the middle part and the end as the most, as the most boring part. Um, because we get to this mountain and there are all these laws and there's all this talk about a tent that God's people are supposed to design. It's a, unless you're really into design, the end of Exodus is like, wow, that, that, that's a lot of talk about a curtain. But God didn't actually, whenever you come to a part like that in the Bible, remember, you're wrong. <laughs> so like, God knows what is actually exciting. And he didn't forget how to tell an exciting story. We just aren't really always tracking with what matters. Because God is not just rescuing Israel from something. He's rescuing them to something. He's saving Israel to do something. Ultimately, not just something for Israel, but for the world. So, and, and we're going to see this at the end of Exodus. But one of the ways of understanding how Exodus works is through like a wordplay. At the beginning of Exodus, Israel is serving Pharaoh. But what does God say he is rescuing Israel to do? He's rescuing Israel to serve him. And so Israel is a servant. Israel was saved to serve God and his purposes in the world. So this is about how Israel moves from serving Pharaoh to serving God. But how exactly are they to serve God? There are a couple key verses to help us understand. And one is Exodus 6, 6 through 8. And this kind of summarizes God's program for Israel. God tells uh Moses in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And you know, um, when you see pictures of pharaohs, you'll often see them with an outstretched arm. And that was a, uh, a very common way of, of in, in, and these days of talking about power. And so God just uses that because he knows that people would be familiar with that. And he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who's brought you out from the under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So God's going to enable Israel to know him. And he's going to keep his promise to give them the land. But what for? What for? We need to keep reading. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, Moses is uh, reflecting on Exodus and God's goal in the Exodus by singing a song. And I think I told you last week, anytime you find a, a song in the Pentateuch, it's, it's important. Um, just like if I started breaking into song now, you probably think, oh, wow, I should you would laugh, but if, if you weren't laughing and I actually could sing, you'd think, oh, it's, he must be trying to get our attention. And that's the same when you're reading uh, the Bible. But Exodus 15, verse um, 17, Moses is reflecting on, ex on what happened. And he says, this is the goal. You, he's talking about God, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And there's a lot there, but you see the way Moses puts it, God has a mountain. And you can kind of have some fun in the Pentateuch uh, if you trace this idea of a mountain and God. Um, one of the images in the Bible, especially in the Pentateuch, is of water being like the uh, place of uh, chaos at least, but like death and judgment. And then mountain, a mountain as being a place where God lives. And so um, even like Ezekiel talks about the Garden of Eden as being on a mountain. And you think of how creation started with the spirit of God hovering over the water and then sort of bringing it all together and making 
the world. And then if you think about Noah, he uh, is rescued through the water and he ends up on a mountain. And then if you think about Exodus, uh, Moses is rescued from the water and Israel is rescued through the water to go to the mountain. And uh, we see the importance of the mountains here. We don't really have to wonder what he means by this mountain because he explains it in the rest of the verse. It's the place which you have made for your abode. It's the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So it's God's home where Israel can experience his special presence. In other words, he's saying, I've saved you so that I can plant you back in the Garden of Eden, basically. And this is going to be an illustration of God's eternal sovereign rule. So that's what he wants to do with Israel. But what does that have to do with the rest of us? Exodus 19, 4 through, four through 6 explains. And these verses are so, so important. If you, if you were going to memorize verses that would help you tell the story of the Bible, you would probably memorize Genesis 3.15. Then you would memorize Genesis 12.3. Uh, you might memorize Genesis 49.10. And then you would definitely memorize Exodus 19.4 through 6. And so in a sense, this is like Israel's mission statement. We work on mission statements for the church. Um, trying to do that even for the website now, but... Uh, a lot of times when you do a church's mission statement, you go to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go and make disciples. But if Israel was going to talk about its mission statement, it would use Exodus 19, 4 to 6. And so listen to what it says, starting in, in, in verse 2, actually. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. So that's describing Israel's deliverance. And it makes clear that God's the one who did this. Um, and again, it, it, it's God who did it, not Moses. It's, it's all God. It's, and he did it for a relationship with Israel, not just with a certain king, but with all the people, which again is so, just so different than anything you would see in the ancient Near East. And he says, I brought you to myself. Now, now why? Here it is. Israel's calling, verse five. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And there are just so many things that are awesome about that. But first of all, just being God's kindness. Because if you think about God in comparison with Pharaoh, Pharaoh is an illustration of how human kings normally work. Pharaoh had a relationship with Israel, but what was the relationship? He was using Israel. And so even in uh, covenants, why do like, why does, uh, why do most empires take over a smaller nation? They, it's not like charity. It's they take over smaller nations because they want to use those smaller nations to further their, uh, to, for themselves. And, and yet we see here that God is entering into a relationship with Israel and honoring them by doing so. It's his intention to bless them. You shall be my treasured possession. And he's going to go on to say that all the earth belongs to him. So the whole earth belongs to God, but Israel is going to have a unique relationship with him. And again, he's making it clear, this relationship's with the whole house of Israel, not just Moses. And again, in the ancient world, kings made treaties like this with other kings, not the common people. But while God's speaking to Moses and through Moses, clearly he's going after a relationship with every single person in Israel. And he's calling all of them to a particular role. They have this unique relationship with him for a specific purpose. It's not an end in and of itself. We got, you are my treasured possession for a reason. I've selected you out of the world for a reason, God's saying. And what's the reason? Verse six, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And this again is like literally unheard of in the entire ancient world that an entire kingdom would be priests. Um, and what do priests do? They represent the people to God and God to the people. 
And priests make it possible for other people to have a relationship with God. And so Israel's in the world in order to make it possible for the world to have a relationship with God. They're a kingdom of priests. And then he says, a holy nation. And the the nation, the word nation is a very specific word. It usually refers to the nations out there, not Israel. And so it's like God saying, you are one of the nations, but I want you to be a set apart nation. If you obey my voice and keep my commandments, you will be set apart. You'll be holy. You'll be a nation among all these other nations that will show the world what God is like. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter four, Moses explains this purpose even more clearly there, I think, in verses five through eight, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five uh, through eight. He says, see, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us wherever we, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so we see the goal is provoking the nations to jealousy in a sense. Israel's living this holy life. The nations are watching and they're saying, who has a God like Israel? Who has a God like Israel? And it's even interesting. I don't know if we'll get the chance to do this. See if I can learn enough to be able to share something that's helpful. But um, even if you look at the land of Israel, so Israel itself is not like a place where you normally would be able to establish a great empire from. There are just certain things that in about where it's located, it, it's the amount that is able to prosper. It's very difficult for it to be a world dominating nation apart from like a miracle, especially in these days. But it was a world influencing empire because it was right set in between Egypt and Babylon, which were the two biggest empires in those days. And all the trade routes ran through Israel. And so part of why God chose that land for this nation is so that they could be in a place where the world would come and see, see, and become jealous because they see how good God is and how good God's been to Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 26 expands a little in verses 16 through 19. And this is Deuteronomy 26. Uh, 16 through 19 is almost like a bookend to Exodus 19, four through six. So really important to understand the first five books of the Bible are different books, but they're basically one book. There's a real strategy to it. And this is like a bookend to Exodus 19, which we read earlier. And here Moses says, this day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul You've declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he's promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he's promised. So Israel's obeying and what happens? God keeps his promises And they're glorified above all the nations. They're famous. They're honored. They're praised. And they're known as belonging to God. And how's that going to happen? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. He explains how it's going to happen in verse 1. He says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you and your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. 
The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And so maybe you see what's happening there because here's this problem. There's this world that's under the curse and nothing works the way it should. And so God rescues this one nation and he enters into this relationship with this nation and as they obey, what's supposed to happen? Here is this one nation on the planet that's not, that, that, that's just the opposite of how it's working every, everywhere else. Like the rest of the world is like experiencing the effects of the curse, but this one nation is like God stuffing all these blessings into it. And the world knows this nation belongs to God. And they're priests, right? They're priests to who? They're priests to the world. So what are they supposed to do? Help the world come to know God. The world's supposed to watch and say, wow, I wish we had their God. And then the world sees all this blessing and knows it's because of their relationship with that God. And they are to be drawn to Israel and to Israel's God as a result. So it's almost like in the Old Testament, God is a missionary and he's using Israel as a tool to put his character on display and draw the world to himself. As they respond to his grace and obedience, he would bless them and turn them into a picture to the world of the privilege and benefits of belonging to God and being rescued by God. So while we usually, if we're going to have a missions conference, we begin with the New Testament. We really should begin with the Old Testament because it's there. God went about it in a little bit of a different way, um, but it's there. And if you read the Psalms, you see Israel knew that. Psalm 67, listen to this. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Anybody know where that comes from? That's a little tough, but it's famous, so. Oh, because numbers it comes from number six. It's the blessing that uh, it was the blessing that Aaron gave the people when he was supposed to give the people when he came out of the temple. Now, God may may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Um, that the psalmist is kind of reflecting here on that blessing that Aaron gave Israel in Numbers, and now he explains the purpose of that blessing in verse two that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. Do the covenant there that, we, that Deuteronomy 28 happened. God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's like, Totally Deuteronomy 28 right there. And we could go on because there are a lot of Psalms that say things like that. But And I think we get a picture starting in Exodus again of how that mission was supposed to happen. God's He's acting in Exodus on behalf of his, of his people so that his people would know that he's God, but also so that Egypt would know that he's God and that the world would know that he's God. And actually, if you think about, I know uh, it's, it's a little hard sometimes reading Exodus, but if you think about um, what God was doing in Egypt to put his name on display there, it's pretty remarkable the opportunity the Egyptians actually had, um, even before the Exodus. So the Egyptians had Joseph. They had Jacob coming and blessing their Pharaoh. Um, they actually, yeah, well. They had a Pharaoh who did the right thing. Uh, so when Jacob died, he wanted to be buried in um, Israel, which was really shocking. So it's like, um, imagine somebody coming to America, becoming super famous from this little tiny country. His son basically saves all of America. And then he wants to go and be buried back in this tiny little village, which is hard for us to understand, but would be even harder uh, back then. And Egypt was really serious about how they dealt with dead people, actually. And uh, so 
um, Jacob asks Joseph to talk to the Pharaoh to, to let him be buried back in his homeland. And Joseph doesn't do it right away. Actually, he lets his dad go through uh, this process uh, of um, that the Egyptians had. And it's, it's almost like Joseph is a little scared to ask <laughs> the Pharaoh. And then when he does, he doesn't ask the Pharaoh directly. He goes through the Pharaoh's um, servants. And I think it's because he's a little concerned about how the Pharaoh is going to respond. And at first, the Pharaoh, the way he responds seems a little cold. He's like, okay, just go. But then when you read the story, actually what happens is the Pharaoh sends like these armies back, all these chariots and like this huge Egyptian um, entourage back with uh, with Jacob and Joseph to the land of Canaan. And they actually enter. It's really, they go a funny way. The route that they go is actually the way that Israel entered from the east, the way that Israel entered into the promised land later, which is not the normal direction you would take from there, but they go and all of, uh, all of Canaan kind of sees the Pharaoh's uh, servants and Egyptians there with the Israelites. He allowed them to go. But, um, so they, the point is they have, they, they have all these like examples even of what they were supposed to do. They have this tiny group of people that become so prosperous that the Pharaoh was afraid of them. They have these signs and wonders and God teaching them who he is. At the end, at the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh says, I don't know this Yahweh, but by the end, he definitely knows Yahweh and his own, his own magicians are like, well, that God is actually God. And you know what he should have done? He should have joined the Israelites. <laughs> That's what he should have done. And lots of people did. But instead, he hardened his heart and he ends up being judged. But that's kind of a glimpse. God putting himself on display through Israel and the nation should have seen that and joined themselves with Israel and they would have experienced the blessing of God. That's sort of the dream scenario. If we think again about when the Pentateuch was written. So Moses told the story of creation after God saved Israel from Egypt and before they entered the promised land. And they're reading this story about Adam and Eve in a, in a garden. And um, they hear things like this. Then they hear things like this. Listen to Leviticus 26. So remember, Moses is telling the story of Adam and Eve after, after they've been delivered and after God's talked to them, met with them at the mountain, and after God's explained their purpose, and even after God's told them about some of the blessing that he's going to bring into their lives and Moses is if they obey and Moses is telling them about Adam and Eve. And then he tells them this in Leviticus 26 about, about them. He says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain, your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies. They shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat Old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And what does the Garden of Eden sound like? It kind of sounds like that, right? <laughs> when he's telling the story of Adam uh, and Eve, it kind of sounds like that before sin messed things up. And so I think Israel's hearing God calling them and giving them the opportunity to be like a second Adam. I guess you could say kind of like a third Adam, if you think of Noah as the second, but it's like God is taking Israel and he's going to put them in the promised land. And if they obey, he's going to bless them in these astounding ways. And he's going to make the promised land almost like a garden of Eden again. And Israel's going to be like a second Adam, but not just for themselves. They know they're priests and it's like they're in the garden. They've been put back in the garden and they're calling the world, come and join us, come and join us. That's the opportunity for Israel. Um, but of course, we know by the time we're finished reading the Old Testament, they failed. 
they failed. But can I tell you something even more striking? We actually would know that by just reading the first five books of the Old Testament. So it's kind of funny. In the first five books, we get Israel's mission, but we also get a prophetic glimpse into how that mission goes. And you know what? Moses knows they're going to fail. So if you go back to Leviticus chapter 26, uh, we read verses 1 through 13. um, But here's the warning. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield your fruit. Their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be distorted. And if by this discipline you're not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. On and on and on until verse 31, he says, I will lay your cities waste. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. God wants to bless them, but he's warning them what's going to happen. They're going to be judged and sent into exile just like Adam. But maybe you say, well, that's just a warning. Well, yeah, that's true. Deuteronomy 30, though, Moses is talking to the next generation of of Israelites. And so the Leviticus 26 generations already failed. And this one has seen that and they've committed themselves to God and Moses is going to die and he's pleading with them. And he's been talking about all these blessings that will happen if they obey God, if they just keep the covenant. But here's Deuteronomy 30. This is a spoiler. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And so in other words, Moses is like, you're going to be sent into exile. (laughs) I know it's going to, I know how the story ends, which is actually the next uh, section in the, in the story. After the Pentateuch, you keep reading. You see, God keeps his promises. He brings his people into the promised land. He comes to dwell with them, but they don't keep their promises. And God's so patient with them the whole time, but they keep failing. And so he raises up a king named David. He makes these great promises to him because he sees the people aren't going to be able to keep the covenant. So it's like he chooses to deliver them through a hero. But David failed. Then all David's descendants fail. And then the nations gets divided in two. And then God ends up expelling them from the land and actually leaving the temple. And so if you think big picture, it's really, it's really tragic. After the Tower of Babylon, Abraham was called from Ur, which is this region where Babylon was, to come to the promised land so that God could solve the problem Adam created and provide blessing. And after all these years now and all this mercy, Israel basically does the same thing Adam did. They won't trust that God knows best. They won't submit to God's law. And so God keeps all the promises he made in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and does exactly what he said he would do. And they end up being judged and going back to where Abraham was from. They're taking, they're taken into exile into Babylon. And even the Davidic line almost looks like it's at an end. And the question, of course, is, is, is that the end of the story? <laughs> is that the end of the Old Testament story? Does it just go creation, fall, promise, then exile? Because if it did, then it wouldn't seem like we got very far, like we read a lot of pages and uh, we didn't get very far. But remember the funny way somebody described the story of the Bible as being what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. 
And the unstoppable force is God's desire to glorify himself through blessing. And the immovable object is man's rebellion. And so each time man fails and rebels and you think it's over, what happens in the Old Testament? Each time, what happens is God reveals the next stage in his promise. We get more information and we get a greater understanding of how he's going to save. And that's what happens as Israel goes into exile. And uh, we'll try to get into that next time. And that will conclude the story so that we can um, go to the next step. Any um, questions or thoughts or comments? That's fun, huh? It's cool. Isaiah, will you close us with a word of prayer? Father, we are in need rejoicing.